Let us pray. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Exodus. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid So, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We do behold you, Lord. We are uh, full of thanks and praise for who you are how good it is to know you. Lord, we pray that your light would shine upon us um, on this day and always, um, that we may um, grow uh, more and more to be like Jesus. And we pray that in his uh, holy name. Amen. I was recently uh, speaking with a a friend of mine, a a fellow priest um, in our diocese, our uh, group of churches, the Church of the Cross is a part of, and he shared with me a dream um, that he had had that he really believed was from the Lord, and when I heard it, that certainly resonated uh, with me, and so I'm going to um, share it with you. It's appropriate to, to share this with you this morning, and in this dream, um, uh, there was a dragon, um, and it was attacking a school. I'm not sure exactly why it was a school um, in the dream, but that's what was happening. Um, as this dragon was attacking the school, uh, my friend um, uh, in his dream um, saw various groups of people running uh, from this dragon and seeking to get away from it. But he said these groups would kind of um, come together sort of in you know, little teams um, sort of in how to deal with this dragon attack. And he said one thing that was striking about these teams, it was people that he knew, but he, he never would have imagined being together, um, that they were sort of strange uh, sort of uh, partners, um, uh, maybe folks with different beliefs, different personalities, um, and yet they were all sort of together and fleeing from um, this dragon. Um, apparently, uh, eventually all the folks kind of gathered in this cafeteria area in the school. The dragon came into that cafeteria area to attack this group. And at that moment, they all turned away from the dragon and began to praise God and began to worship him. As it began to worship the Lord, the dragon's power dissipated. Um, and basically, the dragon lost all his power to attack them and to do them harm. Um, again, I shared that dream and I thought, wow, I, I need to hear that. Um, that uh, the dragon clearly is a biblical representation of Satan and the power of evil. Um, I don't believe the point of the dream is that we should ignore evil or should we pretend that it's not at work. We, we couldn't do that probably if we wanted to. We're especially aware right now of the evil um, in our world as uh, we pray for Ukraine and many places of violence in our world. And yet the scriptures tell us, the book of James says, resist the devil and he will flee. 
And the way we resist the devil is actually by turning to the Lord, by giving our ultimate attention, our ultimate focus to the Lord and worshiping him. Again, that's not to deny the reality of spiritual warfare, right? It is real. Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, which we've been in, talks about us dismantling, coming against strongholds, right? We do that, but we do that as we focus on the Lord and worship him, that the power of the enemy is dissipated, that his harm is lessened. We're um, at the very end of the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a, a season in the church calendar. We've had a long Epiphany. We have a later um, Easter, which is nice when you have to prepare for Easter. Ah, we've got more time uh, this year. And so we've had a longer season of Epiphany. Epiphany, again, is a season where we focus on the glory of Jesus being um, uh, going out into all the world, that his light um, shining. That's, uh, again, the, the theme. It begins off in the season of Epiphany. It begins with um, reading about the, the, the Magi, uh, the wise men who came and were drawn to worship Jesus even not long after his birth. And traditionally, the, the final reading um, uh, for the season of Epiphany is the Transfiguration. Right, as we think about Christ's glory, right, we end um, this moment when the um, glory of Jesus is seen so clearly on the Mount of Transfiguration that the uh, disciples gather there, right, see the divinity of Jesus so clearly as the glory in the, of God shines out from him, right, different from Moses who reflected God's glory, right, Jesus is the source of God's glory. He shines out. And so in the season of Epiphany, again, as we come to the end of the season of Epiphany, it's good to just think about the glory of Christ, to focus our eyes on him, right, as we um, turn away from focusing on evil um, and turn and look to him. We are also um, uh, coming to the end of our Second Corinthians um, series. We were in Second Corinthians this summer. We um, then had a season away, and then we finished up um, uh, the ending of Second Corinthians. And again, we're in the final chapter today. We've had all sorts of um, uh, challenging passages uh, to work through, wonderful and challenging passages. And this passage, right, um, as uh, the book comes to an end, we see some similar themes, right? Paul, once again, um, speaking about the importance of his ministry, once again calling the Corinthians to repentance and to believing the message of the gospel that he shared with them, warning them, right, that, that they need to take heed of his authority. But we also see here, as we've seen throughout the book of Second Corinthians, that he's holding up the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's holding up and calling them, once again, trust in the power of God. Trust in Christ. And that's where I want our focus uh, to be today as we look at this passage, right? How is Paul pointing out to them, where is he upholding God's power, Christ's power, that we can again celebrate the power of Christ at work within us? And so um, uh, the chapter 2 Corinthians 13 continues on um, uh, where 12 ended. This is actually one of those places where those chapter breaks sometimes can cause us to lose the flow a little bit, right? We see a new chapter, we think, oh, here's some new thoughts. This totally flows from where um, chapter 12 um, ended. If you were with us uh, last week, we talked about the end of chapter 12 where Paul speaks about him coming to them in person, which we see here at the beginning of 13. And he acknowledges, right, when I come in person, it's probably going to be kind of tense. That's to put it lightly. I mean, he's saying, when I come, right, there's division among us. I'm concerned about that, but we're going to have to address it. And he says, and I'm afraid that I will be grieved by those of you who haven't repented, specifically have not repented of sexual immorality, which was a major issue in the Corinthian church. And so he acknowledges, I'm coming, but it's going to be hard. I'll be grieving your lack of repentance. And so we see, again, in the beginning of this passage that he's continuing to speak of, right, when I come, I'm going to have to confront, right, the sin, 
and call you to repentance. I'll grieve for your lack of repentance or for ways in which you, you know you need to turn away from sin. And specifically here, he seems to be getting into the need for church discipline. Right? That's come up uh, previously in First and Second Corinthians. Right, that there may be those who refuse to honor his authority, refuse to turn away from their sin, that will actually need to be removed um, from the church. But of course, the goal of church discipline is always ultimately to bring people back into the fellowship of church. Right? It's not to punish them so much as to call them to repentance and call them to turn away um, from the things that they're doing that are hurting the community, that are hurting themselves, and to experience healing. But it's strong language. And maybe even as it was read, you're like, wow, this is kind of, he's, he's sort of threatening them. And since he is, but again, here that the heart of the threat is, I may have to be harsh with you in order that you would turn away and be restored to right relationship with God and with me. The goal is restoration, and that's a word we'll use more here at the end of this sermon to talk a little bit uh, more about. But again, he, he's calling them. So the first thing we can say, though, is he's, he's calling them to repentance, is he's acknowledging Christ's power is at work within you. So as we think about Christ's power and focusing on Christ's power, the first thing we can say is his power is at work in his church. His power is at work among his people. Broadly, the church, the people of God, and specifically, right, this church and the local church, right, he works. And, and that's really the heart of what Paul's calling them to see is look at God's power at work amidst you. Now, again, he's starting with God's power has anointed me as your apostle, as your leader. You need to listen to me. And so, um, again, he's saying, Right, you know, there it may not go well when I come, since you seek proof, uh, verse three, that Christ is speaking in me. Right, and so uh, you will see once again that I this is my calling, that I'm called to bring correction, I'm called to bring um, a direction. This is how God has called me. But we see, even as he's speaking of his own authority, his biggest desire is that they would see that Christ is at work in them. Right? I mean, that's why he's called as an apostle to serve them, is that their eyes would be open to Christ's work in their midst. And so, again, at the end of verse 3, he is powerful among you. And then in verse 5, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Right? Embrace and see the Lord's power in your midst. And yet, once again, we see a problem, a challenge for the Corinthian church, is they want to divorce the power of Christ in their midst from the weakness um, that they're called to see, and even the weakness of Jesus, right? Verse 4, for he was crucified in weakness by lives by the power of God. The Corinthian church, right? Again, we see this in First and Second Corinthians. They're all about power, right? They want power. They're into power. They love it, right? But they don't see the true place of power is to recognize your weakness, is to tap actually into the cross of Jesus Christ, into his grace. That's where you will know power as you realize your weakness apart from the Lord. And he can say he was crucified in weakness. Now, amazingly, this is actually the first time in 2 Corinthians, in the entire book, where um, the crucifixion of Jesus is specifically mentioned. Now, he's talked earlier about the suffering of Jesus, which clearly speaks um, to um, uh, Christ's crucifixion. In a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul spoke about his own thorn in the flesh, right? His suffering, he talked about praying three times that that thorn would be removed, which I talked about recalls Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, where he asked three times of the Lord if the cup of suffering that he was about to endure, if that could be removed. So we've seen, again, images, references to the cross, but here at the very end of the book, right, he's very specific. He was crucified in weakness. Right? If, if Jesus is your Lord, which he should be, if you are trusting in him, you are trusting in one who made his power clear actually through an act of weakness, through giving his life on the cross. Now, of course, in one sense, 
Christ giving his life on the cross was not an act of weakness at all. It was an act of incredible strength. He was obedient to the Lord. He went to the cross willingly. After praying that prayer, he said, not my will, but thy will be done, and went to the cross on our behalf. An incredible act of strength and courage. But he was weak on the cross, right? He died upon the cross. That was a moment of weakness that through that moment of weakness, right, we experience incredible power. And of course, right, the Lord um, defeats sin and death and is resurrected and he ascended um, into heaven, right? But yet the, the giving up of power is tied to receiving power. And we actually see that in our gospel reading, right? In this moment of incredible glory of Jesus where his power is seen, it's coupled with weakness. It actually, if you look at our gospel reading, jumping around a little bit in our readings, but look at the beginning of the gospel reading. Now about eight days after these sayings, what are these sayings? What, what, what is that referring to in the Gospel of Luke? Well, if you go back, this is right eight days after Jesus has been teaching his disciples and told them, I am going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be put to death and will die. I will suffer and I will die and I will rise again. So he tells them even then, I'm going to defeat death, right? They don't seem to get any of that. But he's told them, this is what's happening. And then right after that, he says, and if anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross. They must deny themselves. You must lose your life in order to save your life. Right? So the, the moment right, that, that the transfiguration is looking back on is Jesus speaking about his death on the cross and speaking about through your weakness, through your giving up power, through your losing your life, that's actually how you will gain life. Through your being, allowing yourself to be weak in me, you will know power and you will know strength. Right, and even when we have, right, Jesus is glorified. Moses and Elijah um, show up, right? They're talking with him because they're representing the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. They're there. And what does it say they talked with him about? About what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking with him about his death. Even at that moment, his glory is shining out, right? His death is a, a reality, a coming reality. And so Paul wants them to see Jesus Christ is at work in your midst. Right? I've come to you in weakness. Right? I, I, there's a power I have as the you know, apostles and a leader in your midst, and yet that power comes from my awareness of my own weakness. And I want you to see that if you're aware of your own weakness, as you understand that the Lord works through weakness, you will know power. This is, right, this is his desire that they would see that. And so when we get to verse 5, examine yourselves. Right? Be tested. Or maybe we read them and we think, okay, what are they supposed to examine themselves? What is this test? Is it like, test yourselves, how holy are you? Like, how much are you, you know, not sinning? Is that the test? Is the test, you know, how smart are you? You know, they were very into being smart and being impressive. Like, how smart are you? How much do you really know the scriptures? Right? Is the test, you know, how much do we see God's power in your work? You know, how many of you are speaking in tongues? How many of you are seeing healings and words of prophecy and miracles? Right? All good things. Right? No, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Or what is the test? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? That's the test, right? That's what he's calling them to examine themselves. Do you trust in Jesus? Are you in the faith? Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? That's what he wants them to see. I want you to know the power of God in your midst, the power of Christ in your midst, and that comes through trusting in him, through acknowledging, right? In your own power, you can do nothing. But in Christ's power working in you, right, you can know freedom. You can know joy. You can know a true power in your midst. All right, so the first thing we can say is he wants them to see Christ's power is at work in you. Right? As you acknowledge your weaknesses, you will experience his strength. The second thing, though, that he's wanting them to see is the truth is being coming in your midst, right? Christ is bringing his truth. 
Now, this part about the testing and test yourselves and are you in the faith, it gets a little confusing because then he says, well, you know, we hope you'll find that we've not failed the test. We pray that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have um, met the test, but that you may do what is right, right, that we may seem to have failed, right? Very confusing. I've been reading this passage all week. I'm still confused by that. What's going on there, right? He's basically saying, we want you to pass the test. We want you to have faith. Now, clearly, Paul has faith. The leaders that serve alongside him have faith. But I don't think he's saying, we don't know if we'll pass the test. Of course they will, right? They have faith. But I think at the heart of what he's saying is, what we most want is for you to put your trust in Christ. And even if that were to happen and we were to appear to be failures, that's okay, right? It's not about us shining out, about who we are, about us being proven right. It's about you knowing Christ. It's about you putting your faith in him. And so if for some reason you knowing Christ meant that we look like we have been defeated, right? I mean, if, they, if the Corinthian church suddenly gets stronger, right, and everyone says, see, they didn't need Paul, Paul would be like, fine, right? That's great that they, they didn't need me, right? That would make me very happy because I want them to see they need the Lord first and foremost. I think that's, again, I'm putting some words into Paul's um, uh, mouth here. Um, hopefully he's okay with that. But I think that's what he's getting at. Again, because then you get to verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. The fact of the matter is, the truth ultimately will shine out. We can resist the truth. If we, we, we can try, right? I mean, we can engage in deceit right now. We can engage in lies right now. But the fact is, at the end of the day, the truth will win out. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And so if the truth shines out, right, and, and we're revealed to have messed up in some ways, that's fine because we want the truth. I was struck as I think about this as, again, celebrating. The Lord is bringing his truth. The Lord is shining out his truth upon us, opening our eyes to see his truth. That sometimes it's speaking about the Lord's truth. Sometimes it can almost be spoken about in almost sort of a, um, a sort of a superior way sometimes by Christians, right? We know the truth, right? And we do. We've been given the truth in the scriptures, in Jesus. We have, the truth has been revealed to us. But again, sometimes I, I hear that almost used in sort of a, um, again, almost sort of a smugness about it. You know, we know the truth and you don't. Now we do see in the scriptures, right, a longing for vindication, a longing for justice, a longing for the truth to be known. And that's a good and right longing. But we should be clear, as we long for the truth, we long for everyone to know the truth, right? It's not ultimately that we long to be proven right. It's we want everyone's eyes to see the truth, to see the truth of who Jesus is and his work in our world. And also, we should be open as we long for truth to know when the truth shines out, there may be some areas where we see, oh, I've been wrong about this. Oh, I've been mistaken, Right? Longing for the truth should come actually from a humility that understands we see through a glass darkly. To quote, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, right? We see through a mirror dimly. We don't see the whole truth. And that doesn't mean, again, that the whole truth has not been revealed to us in the scriptures, right? That, that we can't truly know God. But it's acknowledging, right? There's, we're still human. We're still frail. There's, we're still weak. There's still things we don't completely understand about the Lord. And we have an incredible ability to self-deceive. It's just part of being human. I knew a pastor, he said, every morning we should wake up and look in the mirror and say, I self-deceive. Um, that's kind of a bad way to begin your day, so I don't know. Maybe at the end of the day, maybe do that. But his point was, right, we self-deceive, right? We lie to ourselves and we don't see it because we're self-deceiving, right? And so we often miss out. And again, we can grow in the Lord and seek his help. We can grow in community and, and seek out others that can help us to see our blind spots. But there's a certain humility that says, yes, I'm seeking the truth in the Lord, but there are ways in which I'm missing out. 
on the fullness of the truth. Because of my own sinfulness, because of the blind spots I have, there are things I don't see. And so when the truth is fully revealed, when the truth fully shines out, there will probably be things I'll need to repent of. There'll be things and situations perhaps where I was sure I was in the right, and then I realized, ooh, I was kind of off there. But we should long for that, right? Because we know the truth will set us free. As the Lord brings his truth, maybe there'll be some humility that comes to us, but we want that, right? We welcome that. And we want the truth to set others free. And that's where I think, again, even while we can see there's some defensiveness on Paul's part um, um, in this book, right? There's also ultimately a trust. The truth will come out. And I can trust in that. Ultimately, we don't need to defend ourselves, but we can look forward to the truth being revealed and live in that. And so there's that longing for the truth and the trust. God is bringing his truth. Christ is bringing his truth. But finally, then we also see the, the longing and the bringing of restoration, right? that the Lord is bringing restoration, right? A great word, a word uh, we love for many reasons, uh, but one reason we love it is we have a daughter church named Restoration Anglican. Um, and uh, so studying this passage and thinking about restoration, I reached out to Rick Storrs, who's the senior pastor there at Restoration. Restoration um, is in Minneapolis. Um, and I said, remind me of why uh, you called the church Restoration, why that was the name that your team, when you were beginning the church, um, landed on. Um, and he directed me to their website, um, and, you know, which I could have gone to in the first place. Right, but why go to the website when you can talk to someone? You know? I'm like, I don't want to read your website, Rick. Just tell me. So he wrote out the website and sent it to me. Um, uh, but it says this. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, uh, it says this, and this is just part, and you can go and read the whole thing. But it says, embedded in the word restoration is a story. It implies that there was once something whole, functional, and esteemed. But for whatever reason, it fell into disrepair. Yet instead of discarding it and starting from scratch, it underwent a process of revitalization. New life was breathed into something already present, returning it to its original splendor. Right? That's good. I, I can see why he told me. Read the website. That's good. Right? Revitalization. New life being breathed into something that once was glorious that needs to be restored. And what does Paul say? He says, we pray for restoration, right? Notice a couple times in this passage, he says we pray. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. We want you to do right. We pray for restoration. He's acknowledged when I come, there may be division, but we are praying that our relationship will be restored. We're praying that you will be restored to right relationship with the Lord. As we think about restoration, right? There's sort of the macro restoration, right? I mean, that's the entire story of scripture. We, right, we read in Genesis of the Lord creating people to be in relationship with him Adam and Eve, right, knew the Lord intimately, right? They were in harmonious relationship with one another, and then they turn away from God, and they give in to sin, right? And that relationship with the Lord is, is, is hurt. The relationship with one another is hurt. And then from then on, right, we have the story of restoration. We have the Lord restoring people in right relationship to one another and right relationship to him. And we see that throughout the scriptures. And then we get to the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, right? We see a, that vision for incredible restoration and in the new heavens and the new earth. Right, where we take our seat, right, in a, a great feast with the Lord, which we get a foretaste of, right, as we you know, indulge in the feast um, today, the Feast of Communion, communion right? And we, we see that full restoration. And so you have that macro vision of restoration, but then you have the micro experiencing of it in the church, right, that we can experience restoration. We can hope in restoration among ourselves and with the Lord because we know ultimately that's what he's doing, and therefore we can count on and look forward to him doing it in our midst. And so when he says pray, restoration is what we pray for, when in verse 11 he says aim for restoration, 
He can say, we aim for this, we pray for this, because we know it's coming. It's like the truth. We know the full truth will ultimately be revealed, so we work for truth now. We know full restoration will ultimately be revealed, so we work for restoration now. Now, as I've been thinking about this and coming to the end, again, of this Second Corinthian series as we've been in it for a while, I've just been thinking about, man, you know, what a troubled church. So many issues that come up in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. And I've thought, what if you, you know, were, were reading this book, these letters, and being told, right, this is one of the first Christian churches, right? This is one of the earliest, you know, groupings of followers of Christ. What if you were told that and you read these letters, but you didn't know what happened next? Like, you didn't know, like, what happened to Christianity. Like, what would you be thinking as you'd be reading these letters? Like, okay, this is one of the earliest churches, and, like, they're divided amongst themselves. They're fighting. They're listening to false teachers. They're divided against this person who's writing them this letter. And then you're asked, like, how much time do you give this whole church thing? Like, how much time do you give this whole Christianity thing? Like, what would you, where do you think you'd be? Might be maybe, like, 20 years. I don't know. Like, this is not good. I mean, this is kind of falling apart right now. And yet here we are, right, 2,000 years later in Minnesota, of all places, worshiping the Lord, right, the same Lord. Right? Jesus said, I will build my church, and he has done it. He has built his church. He's done it, right? But he's done it through his people, right, through us weak, faulty people. And that's where it's important to remember, yeah, first Corinthian church, they were, they were kind of a mess. But yet God was working them even now. It's not just, oh, once they start listening to Paul and start turning away, then God will be at work in their midst. No, Paul acknowledges again and again, God is in your midst right now. Eugene Peterson, a great uh, writer, um, uh, pastor who passed away a few um, years ago, um, he says this. He says, there seemed to be more going on in Corinth than any place else, a mixture of sin and grace and emotion. Everything that could go wrong in a congregation went wrong there. Arguments, factions, sexual improprieties, discrimination, outrageous rudeness, stupidity, snobbishness, right? A great list of things that were happening in the Corinthian church. But then he says this, but nearly everything that can go right in a congregation went right there too. Forgiveness, a deeply felt life centered in acts of baptism in the Eucharist, passionate acts of reconciliation, reckless generosity in giving offerings, a determination to live the life of the Spirit in community. Isn't that hopeful? It's like, yes, as messed up as they were, God was working in their midst. People were coming to faith in Jesus. They were experiencing forgiveness. They were seeing the work of the Spirit in their midst, right? The Spirit of God was not saying, once you guys get perfect, then you'll see my work in your midst. He was working in their midst even then, in the midst of that. So this, um, or I guess it was last week, um, I uh, was feeling rather discouraged on one morning. I guess maybe you could say I was a little more focused on the dragon um, than I was on the Lord and feeling discouraged about things in, in the world and just a, a heaviness. Um, and I came up here uh, to, to Church of the Cross, and when I came into the building, uh, Josh Moon, who's the pastor of Resurrection Anglican, a, another one of our daughter churches, was, was working here. Um, and we started to talk a little bit. I mean, he shared with me about this Bible study that doing, doing a resurrection, similar to one actually um, that uh, our women are doing on um, Wednesday nights here, on the study of the book of Eccles- Ecclesiastes. And he shared about how this Ecclesiastes study um, that they're doing in resurrection has attracted all these folks, not only who have never studied the Bible before, but not, are, are not even sure if they believe in the Bible, right? Their friends have invited them, and they're coming, and they're like, I don't even know if I believe this, but I want to study it. And they're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, and they're like, the Bible says this? I mean, they're like kind of surprised you read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a little dark at times. They're like, wow, like this is kind of cool. And they're opening up to the Lord and engaging with God's word and engaging with the Lord through his word. 
And so Josh shared with me that, and then I walked downstairs in our building, and uh, Pete Berg, our, our youth pastor, was there, and he was meeting with um, um, ministry residents of Restoration Anglican, again, another one of our daughter churches. And they're talking about how do we strengthen youth ministry, and how do we partner more together to, to reach youth and, and to bless youth in the Twin Cities. And then I came up here, and they were just beginning to put those paintings up um, on the wall, our, our art gallery team, and, and changing on the paintings. And an art gallery is something we prayed for for years for Church of the Cross. And here it is, right? And we're surrounded by this beauty and this opportunity to celebrate God's beauty through artists, artists that know the Lord and some artists who don't know the Lord, and yet God is working through them. And it was such an experience for me of, oh, God's at work in his church, right? And that's just a little moment here inside the walls of Church of the Cross. And, of course, God is working much more powerfully in his church outside the walls of our building, right? In your homes and in your places of work, right? And in your relationships. I just needed that reminder, right? That reminder, yes, right, there is a dragon, But we don't need to look to that dragon, right? We're engaged in a battle, right? But we look to the Lord who has won the battle. So as I finish, I just want to take a moment and just invite us to uh, just a brief time of silence. Um, We'll have a brief time of silence in uh, Ash Wednesday as well. But just to take a moment and just ask the Lord, Lord, open my eyes to just one place where I see your power right now. Or maybe I'm not seeing your power. Open my eyes to a place that your power is at work in my midst, in, in the midst of my life. Let's just, again, ask for that and um, uh, just take a moment to give thanks to him. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.